Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, it's Mike. It's Saturday. It's the Saturday show where we give you the best of the week and the best of all time. But the best of all time, it really means it should be something new, unless you're going back and listening to shows we did in 2015. You weirdo. You blessed, blessed weirdo. This week, I'm sure that it's going to be new to your ears because we've never aired it before. As I mentioned yesterday, we have more of our conversation with Dana Stevens about the Academy Awards. And then we're going to air the best of the week segment. Now, a few words on that, and I've not done this before, but after the Dana conversation, I'll come back and set up once again the conversation or the spiel that I recorded on Thursday. And the thing that sparked my idea was former Prime Minister of New New Zealand Jacinda Ardern's resignation where she talked about having nothing left in the tank and that was taken as a sign of her admitting burnout and celebrated as such and I was happy to have done the spiel. It was quite long. It prompted a discussion, and I like that. On the other hand, I have some, I'm not going to say regrets, but if I had to reframe that in a way that is, I see consistently being not misinterpreted, every interpretation is valid, but in if I had to reframe that in a way that I see as uh, being interpreted in a way I didn't fully intend, well, I get a chance to do that now on the Saturday show. So first, she is Slate's film critic. She is a member of the Slate Culture Gab Fest, and she is the author of Cameraman, Dana Stevens. We join the conversation talking about some of the best picture nominations and what they say about what the Academy wants to say about film. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. We've mostly talked about the best pictures, but sometimes honors are uh, conferred upon a performance and that becomes the thing to see. And the odds on favorite, uh, I just looked, uh, for best actor is Brendan Fraser in The Wild. She's trying to help him. Help. Ellie. She was trying to help him. She just wanted to send him home. Do you ever get the feeling 
People are incapable of not caring. People are amazing. Did you like that performance? I mean, this is a touchy category because what do you do when someone gives a great performance in a movie that you find absolutely awful and even right. objectionable, right? I mean, this is the it's, Joker it's problem the in a way. It's the Lena question. <laughs> she went best cinematography. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of pushing it. The whale is not that evil. But it, to me, it's sort of Joker syndrome. You know, it's like you can't question that Joaquin Phoenix was great in Joker. He's the only thing that made it remotely watchable. And he found some moments of beauty, even in this just absurd, terribly written role. But I still rooted against that movie and rooted against him winning as he ended up doing because because I feel like the Joker should not be rewarded for existing. And that's how I feel about The Whale as well. So Brendan Fraser is terribly <laughs> moving but in wait it. wait a minute. But- Joaquin Phoenix gave such an important message about milk production. He changed all of our consciousness <laughs> not that day. Wasn't that worth it? <laughs> I forgot about that. That's right. He gave that really rambling speech about veganism. God bless him. I love Joaquin Phoenix and all his, he's just completely non-Hollywood. You know, he just did not belong behind that podium and, and it showed. I mean, Brendan Fraser's comeback is is a great thing for him and for movies. And I can't wait to see him in more things. He was also great in a Steven Soderbergh movie a couple of years ago. Uh, but do I yes, want it to be in rec- no sudden move? That is yeah, yeah. people should find that movie. It was only on a streamer. I think it was came out during uh, COVID. It's a great movie. Yes, that was it's it's a really fun kind of crime caper from Steven Soderbergh, and that was my moment of hey, it's Brendan Fraser, he's back. You know, he has a small but really memorable role in in that movie. Um, and yes, he does an incredible job in the whale. But what does he do an incredible job at doing? Wearing this giant prosthetic fat suit. And making the viewer feel sorry for him. And this is not about Brendan Fraser. This is about Darren Aronofsky, the director of The Whale, who I, I just think, and you can you can read me on uh, at length on this in Slate, because I wrote one of my rare, just really true, complete pans of The Whale, like this movie should not exist and it makes me angry. And, you know, that's coming from the point of view of someone who is not a, a fat activist and is not particularly, you know, I don't know a lot about that world. I just know that- Do you think like fat suit acting should be eliminated? It's sort of a uh, bodily version of blackface? I mean, I think that there are there are there's a spectrum. There's a continuum, right? There's plenty of performances that have used prosthetics, including to make a person look bigger that I that I like and respect. But this is a a, a movie and a fat suit specifically about, you know, let's look at and and feel abject pity for this shut in, you know, this depressed, incredibly sad uh, person who weighs 600 pounds or something like that. And just the way that the movie made him this this spectacle, I thought was really grotesque. You have to see the movie to, to see what I'm talking about. But it's just a bad movie. Also, it's boring. You see where the story is going all the way through. It is not a good film. And while I'm very happy Brendan Fraser is back, for him to be recognized for it will mean that more movies like The Whale will be made. You know, the other other prosthetic fat suits will be created for other actors so that they can get Oscars. And it's just perpetuating a machine of what the Oscars should be um, that I don't I don't want to perpetuate. So, yeah, I, I am rooting actively against that, even as I hope that Brendan Fraser's career now takes off into the stratosphere. So the greatest act that Elvis can do from the grave is allow Austin Butler to beat Brendan and Frazier for best actor, you're saying. Come on, Elvis. <laughs> I mean, I don't Help think... society one last time. 
I I have a favorite there, and maybe this will end up being my one fist-pumping thing, but I would love Colin Farrell to win for Banshees of Inisherin, and I'm surprised that he isn't among the favorites because unlike Austin Butler, who's great in Elvis, a movie I did not like very much at all, but he's a newcomer, right? I mean, he's just starting his career, whereas Colin Farrell has been doing good work for decades and making more and more interesting choices. He made two really good and really unusual movies last year, The Banshees of Inisherin and After Yang was great in both. Give it to Colin Farrell. I feel like it's it's his year and it's his time. Yeah, he and Butler are actually, you know, tied in the odds if you want to look at it. Uh, there is a there is a Colin Farrell theory, which is that that guy is a great actor when he doesn't have to do an American accent. Yeah, it could be true. I mean, and, and, and he he just picked Let better him speak material. Irish and he'll blow you away. <laughs> Although I've liked I've liked him in some of his his English his American accented roles as well. I just I love a Colin Farrell. And Andrea Riseborough got a surprise nomination in that she was in uh, a very little scene film, though, a powerful performance. And I've read a couple interpretations of her nomination, and I think the least generous one, but you tell me if this is true, is that her famous friends advocated for her, and that's what generated the buzz. I question that because some of those famous friends themselves are sometimes up, up for Oscars and they don't even get nominated. Yeah, apparently there's actually going to be an investigation into this to see whether Academy rules were violated. And I'm not clear enough on exactly what happened to know what those rules would have been. But it's I mean, it it seems a little bit like a non-controversy to me. That was a very unexpected nomination. It was out of left field. It seems basically to have been something of a groundswell of support from the director's wife, who I guess is a good friend of Andrea Riseborough's and thought that her friend should get more recognition and sent out a bunch of emails. And again, I'm not clear if it's against the rules to do this, I don't think it is, but she essentially sort of, you know, conducted a, a grassroots campaign saying, let's recognize this small movie and small performance. And it ended up working. That was not an attempt to shut out, uh, for example, Viola Davis and uh, Daniel Deadweiler, two women who were not nominated that people are up in arms about saying that, that Andrea Riseborough took their spot. I mean, obviously it doesn't quite work in that simple of a way, but Viola Davis has her Oscar already. Um, I think that Till, the movie about Emmett Till that Daniel Deadweiler was in, has not been seen by many Academy voters because it has that problem uh, of being incredibly depressing. And it's yeah. really hard to get people to put on movies that are about something like a 14 year old getting lynched when they have other more feel good choices to watch. You know, this is an ancient Oscars problem. So, yeah, there's some there's been some sniping about why Andrea Riseborough came out of nowhere. But it's. I don't think it's really the case that, you know, she's being she's being her way is being greased in in some sort of uh, uh, under the table way. Yeah, it would be, I guess, the analogy to in, an investigation that bore any fruit would be looking at the Bernie Sanders campaign and say, no, you didn't take enough money from PACs. It was only individual donations. The grassroots helped you out too much. I guess the criticism has been that that a lot of the um, the language of people supporting her on social media was sort of identical. You know, it's that kind of tur- astroturf campaign thing uh-huh. where it seems like maybe people were all posting the exact same phrases in praise of her performance. I don't know. I, I It's too early to weigh in on something like that. And it seems to me a somewhat silly thing to get up in arms about because she doesn't stand any chance of winning the category. And it's bringing some recognition to a small movie in which she's apparently great. I have not seen the film yet. Dana Stevens writes about film for Slate. She's one of the hosts of the Culture Gab Fest, and she is the author of Cameraman, Buster Keaton, The Dawn of Cinema, and The Invention of the 20th Century. Thank you so much, Dana. So fun, Mike.
And now here's a conversation, a spiel that I issued. That's what I do. It's like a papal proclamation. There's the ex-cathedra spiels and just the ones that are off the cuff. But I talked about Jacinda Ardern. She was quite well celebrated for her resigning and citing the fact that she had nothing left in the tank. That was a quote that went around the world. And the point of my spiel was not about Ardern, but it was hard not to hear it that way. The other point of my spiel was not so much to say, here is an opinion that is right, although sometimes I'm quite impassioned about opinions that I think are right. But as you hear, as you will hear in the spiel, there are a couple of times where I say, I know this is a thought I shouldn't be having, and I have talked over this thought. This, what you'll hear, is one of those spiels where the attempt is to essentially start a conversation amongst me and you, the listeners. One of the places the conversation breaks out is our Reddit page. You can go to the GIST uh, Reddit page where we talk about, a number of listeners talk about things they heard on the show. But I knew this would happen, and this is on me. It became too much about Jacinda Ardern. Hers was the peg. And I want to play, and I could have done this in the original spiel, though it is quite long. I wanted to play a further clip that cements the point that Ardern isn't exactly what I'm talking about. In fact, Ardern herself backs off the idea that the reason, the reason she resigned was because of something like emotional fatigue or burnout. Here, listen to this clip from her original Not Enough Left in the Tank press conference. But I don't want to leave the impression uh, that the adversity you face in politics uh, is the reason that people exit. Uh, Yes, it does have an impact. Uh, We are humans after all. But that was not the basis of my decision. In politics, you have adversity. Uh, You have disagreement. We need to nurture that. We also need to do our best to make sure it's respectful. But that was not the basis of my decision. Okay. So with that in mind, and in the spirit of my reflecting on a spiel that might not have been perfectly crafted, yet I still think serves a value as a conversation starter. Here is uh, what I said just a couple days ago. And now the spiel. New Zealand has a new prime minister, Chris Hipkins, a name you will likely never hear again if he's anything like other New Zealand prime ministers, except the last one. Through her charisma, policies, biography, and savvy, Hipkins' predecessor, Jacinda Ardern, earned renown. And the reason that Jacinda Ardern is no longer leader of that country is, according to Jacinda Ardern, I know what this job takes, and I know that I no longer have enough in the tank to do it justice. It's that simple. Which was interpreted as an awareness of a term that's very much on people's minds these days, burnout. Ardern wasn't just the second ever head of state to have a baby in office. And the young woman who steered her nation through COVID with just about the world's lowest death rate per capita, she also became a self-care shiro, setting an example to emulate. New York Times, Jacinda Ardern says no to burnout. Axios, Ardern's exit after unprecedented threats shows toll of burnout for women leaders. Vogue, in her decision to step down, Ardern is showing her leadership instinct until the end, trusting your gut and when the moment comes, doing what's best for you. That actually seems quite the opposite of leadership, something of a definition of selfishness. Here's Elle magazine. It's an empowering move, one that, giving up power that is, one that allows us to regain control, look at our lives holistically and make positive change, be it in spending more time with family as Ardern plans to do, focusing on our well-being, learning to put ourselves first, go down an entirely new route, or even making the great leap 
into nothing. Now, a couple of caveats. Ardern is absolutely, absolutely within her rights as a person, as a leader, to recognize that she's a human being with frailty and needs. And even if New Zealand is, compared to the U.S., a functional, happy society with the bonds of community still in place, her job is extremely stressful. She opted for lockdown measures, and they saved lives, but they also sparked protests and a lot of pushback. She's the head of state at a time of inflation, and she's getting blamed for that unfairly. I don't think that burnout, a word that she never said in her press conference, though, best describes her decision. Basically, it's that in a parliamentary system, a weakened, less popular head of government will often bow out to make way for a more plausible successor from within her party. And she's done so because she's good at reading the tea leaves, not because she's desperate to curl up with a chamomile beside a snuggly fire. Ardern's not lying or even misleading. She was a leader with diminishing political options who correctly assessed the situation. A situation that also included job stress, but also that stress was compounded by her diminishing political options. All right. All this so far has been specific to Ardern. I want to get into a thought that I think I shouldn't have had. A notion I couldn't get out of my head. I kicked it around. What I do is I don't immediately opine. I talk it over with loved ones. I do this... I do this uh, often. I read things, but I do have a daily podcast. It's called The Gist. You know it. And when no one else is really talking about an issue, even if it's maybe treading on grounds that will paint me as the great Santini, I kind of have to go for it. I shouldn't, but I will. Here goes. The celebration of Ardern's recognition of burnout, the applause for her wisdom and bravery, we have to admit, don't we, is just a little bit in tension with the loudest voices of those approving of her who also always tell us that the stakes of activism, of being active, of leadership, of fighting against the forces of evil, the stakes couldn't be higher. That's why it's so important to fight the good fight and do the work. So I do sympathize when a progressive or maybe progressive signifying world leader bows out because of the stress and the toll, but it's a stress and toll that's portrayed as fighting really nefarious forces that need to be fought, the forces of evil. And you know who doesn't engage in self-care or whoever takes a me day, as far as I can tell? Donald Trump, Jair Bolsonaro, Vladimir Putin. That guy is always advancing, literally advancing, never retreating. He does not surrender. He does not go on to live, what is it, in a world that's living holistically and making positive changes. So if it's a pitched battle between activists who talk about the stakes and malefactors who represent destruction, aren't the activists acknowledging that they're at a giant disadvantage and by removing themselves from the battlefield, putting their enemies at a much greater advantage? And aren't the forces of light, to take our Tolkien construction, aren't they showing their enemies that they can be defeated and how they can be defeated? You know, Martin Luther King moved into the Chicago projects to show the world how terrible the Chicago projects were. He did so while battling serious depression. MLK struggled with depression his whole life. Abraham Lincoln did too. Yeah, I know. These are impossible moral beacons to the mere mortals around now. Impossible to emulate them. Only they actually are literally or were mere mortals before their near deification. 
And we are told about the importance of meeting this, this dire, this critical moment with nothing short of the resolve that it took to win critical battles in the past. I don't hear anyone today saying Black Lives Matter, of course, we can't fight as hard as they did during the civil rights era. The notion is we have to fight just as hard. I think they probably do. But it's not fighting just as hard if you also celebrate bowing out to do what's right for you. And like I said, Trump's tank seems perpetually full. Here's a a 76-year-old obese man given to fits of rage, but somehow he has no off switch. He doesn't go into self-care mode. I mean, take this example. Writing in The New Yorker, Jill Lepore, citing the work of the January 6th Commission, which, quote, counted at least 200 attempts, which he, meaning Trump, made to influence state or local officials by phone, text, posts, or public remarks. A Trump campaign spreadsheet documents efforts to contact more than 190 Republican state legislators in Arizona, Georgia, and Michigan alone. Well, what a motor on that guy. Sauron never took a day off from creating orcs, did he? You know, after equity, the most common word used by activists is exhausted. In May, Sadvi Mohan Kumar, a junior undergraduate at the College of New Jersey, gave a TED Talk called, We Need to Fight Activism Fatigue. Here's a clip. Activism fatigue is the feeling of exhaustion when you've been learning every nuance of every issue, yet it never seems to be enough. And it's the feeling when you tirelessly campaign for change in your community, but never reap the rewards of your hard work. And it's the feeling when you opened your news app this morning and read about what's going on in Ukraine, but then got a notification about another school shooting. So we should talk about gun laws now. But did you hear about that new law that's restricting abortion access? Or the fact that Syrian refugees are still being relocated? Did you know Flint still does not have access to clean water? Unequal access to education? Child brides? The Amazon rainforest is still dying. There are concentration camps in China today, and no one is talking about them. People are talking about it. That's how it came up on your app, which maybe you should change the settings of. Also, Flint has had water for going on three years now. It'll be four in February. It's a horrible crisis. The results are still being shown in children's development there. But there's water. Flint does have clean water, has for years. So I don't know, maybe it's fatiguing when progress is made, but then is ignored because untruthful memes are more powerful than just looking into the facts. All right, that's one undergrad, but the sentiment is everywhere. How exhausting it is to advocate for change. Compared to what? Compared to not gluing your hand on an oil painting? Or compared to the generally hard work that so many people do of improving the world with more targeted and practical solutions? They're less dramatic, they're less grandiose, but they actually get the job done, might leave a little in the tank also. Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, for whom I have a lot of respect in many ways, told the New York Times that she thinks of quitting AOC. I didn't even know if I was going to run for re-election this year. New York Times, really, why? Answer. It's the incoming, it's the stress, it's the violence, it's the lack of support from your own party. It's your own party thinking you're the enemy. Well... 
You got elected, and then you told the other Democrats they were on notice if they weren't progressive enough, and then you primaried them or organized primaries against them because you were trying to pick off moderate Democrats. You were successful in a few cases, unsuccessful in more cases. But yeah, that was your choice in executing your theory of change, which I think is wrong, but I know is going to get you marked as something as less than a team player. Again, I'm sounding like Robert Duvall in that movie. I don't want to just pick on young or youngish women who've removed themselves from the arena over stress. In New York City, Corey Johnson decided against running for mayor, citing mental health. I've had on Jason Kander, who talked about bowing out of electoral politics to care for his PTSD. And another counterpoint to women who've exited isn't just men who've exited. Let's talk about women who stick it out. I think of Illinois Senator Tammy Duckworth, who, like Ardern, had a baby while in office. The Senate is not an institution that makes childcare easy, and she doesn't live in a country with maternal leave, unlike Ardern. Duckworth is doing this all as a double amputee, by the way. Again, it's tough to compare real people to impossible standards, but Tammy Duckworth's real. And yeah, if Tammy Duckworth said, I couldn't do it anymore, we'd have to be understanding. But shouldn't the celebration be of doing it at least as much as of not doing it? We definitely as a society, have undergone a shift away from insensitivity. We were so ignorant of mental health. We were so callous. We didn't identify with the humanity of everyone else. We were sexist. Absolutely, we still are. Absolutely true. But the shift isn't just from insensitivity to now a properly calibrated sensitivity. Because when we favor the virtue of sensitivity, We're choosing against the virtue of resilience. Not always. Sometimes it's just proper sensitivity. Sometimes that which is called resilience is something like unrealism or toughening it out or cruelty on the part of the person advocating it. And, you know, in general, it's counterproductive to paint the world in absolutes. I know Simone Biles wasn't a coward for pulling out of a few Olympic events. It is dangerous when you're twisting in the air. But I question whether she's more heroic for pulling out of the Olympics than she is for being the greatest gymnast of all time. And that took more sacrifice and pain than the average person could possibly understand. Again, it's not really about Jacinda Ardern. Go live, laugh, love, Jacinda, I say to thee. But if this is a fight, if this is the struggle we're told it is, the combatants need to ask themselves, who has the advantage, the sensitive or the resilient? I'd say you have to have some of both, keeping in mind that the enemies, their tanks seem to be perpetually on full. And that's it for the Saturday show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara, and the senior producer of The Gist is Joel Patterson. Monday's a new day and a new show. Talk to you then.